Well, a few weeks ago, I had a guy's fire pit night at my house. I had reached out to several of the dads in my neighborhood, uh, just wanting to get to know some of these men better and develop relationships and really start to strengthen the sense of community in our neighborhood. So I, I threw some logs in my fire pit, pulled up several chairs around it, and we had about five or six guys. Uh, it, was, it was great. No agenda, just getting to know one another. And I loved hearing stories from everyone's lives and getting to know more about their families. Uh, one of my neighbors, his name is Drew, uh, he's a fireman, and we were all amazed as he was telling us about how quickly they could be on the site of an emergency once they get the call. In his district, from the time they receive the call, there would be a truck on site with water on the fire in less than two minutes. Like, I was amazed at that. Like, I can barely get my shoes on and my car started in less than two minutes, right? But these firefighters, they had developed systems that helped speed up the process and eliminate anything that might slow them down or distract them from their accomplishing the goal of putting out fires. And you know, in the church today, we also have a goal. We have a mission. Jesus told the 12, as Tyler just read, specifically to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. To, to break that down, make disciples, baptize them, teach them how to follow. That's our mission as the church. That is the core and here at Overflow, we say it a little bit differently, as we said earlier. Our mission is to saturate our community with the overflowing love of Jesus. But at its core, it comes back to exactly what Jesus said. We're making disciples, we're baptizing, and we're teaching them how to follow. Unfortunately, we, and this is a collective we as I think of Christianity as a whole, but we sometimes stray from that mission Sometimes we turn our attention away from what is most important and we begin focusing on things of lesser significance. Instead of making disciples, we focus on making um, decisions, you could say. Instead of baptisms, we turn our attention to buildings. Instead of teaching them to follow we become distracted by technology and gaining followers. And hear me, many of these things are good, and they can be useful in carrying out the mission. But if they become a distraction or a hindrance in carrying out our mission, we have to recenter. Now today we're continuing our series, The Gospel According to Luke. And if you're a guest with us today, you may be surprised uh, we're not actually studying the book of Luke, uh, we're studying the book of Acts. Uh, but Luke and Acts were both written by Luke. Uh, they both tell the stories of Jesus and his church, with Luke's gospel focusing on Jesus' life and ministry, and the book of Acts focusing on the Holy Spirit's work in and through the early church. And as we pick back up in the book of Acts, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We'll be reading Acts 6, verses 1 through 7 today. 
And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have some available in the seat back in front of you. Uh, You can find in those white and orange Bibles, our text is on page 622. But let me also just say, if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, uh, we would love to give you that Bible as our gift to you. We believe that's one of the greatest gifts that we can give. But let's go ahead and begin reading Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So here's the big picture in the text this morning. The twelve, the apostles, the leaders of the church, those that Jesus had specifically entrusted with making sure that they carry out the mission he had given them. They decided, rather than doing multiple things poorly, they would focus their efforts on the first things, the most important things, the things that they were specifically entrusted with and responsible for. And then they would raise up specific individuals who could better carry out the needs that arose. And as a result, the church flourished. So that's the big picture. Let's now consider the text with a little more detail. Verse 1 lays out the situation. It says, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, this is not long after the establishment of the church. Uh, The text doesn't exactly tell us how long after Jesus' resurrection this is happening, but it's certainly less than a year and a half. Like, I would guess even less than six months after Jesus was resurrected. In a short period of time, the church experienced massive growth. Uh, There are more than 5,000 people gathering together. And it's more than a once a week gathering like we're used to in our society. This is daily worship and fellowship and sharing meals together. This is a radical community where people who were formerly strangers are now sacrificing for one another. They're making room in their homes. They're making room around their tables to know and grow and show Jesus' love to others. And yet... This community, which seems beyond incredible, was not without its problems. Luke records that a complaint arose by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews 
that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. And essentially, there were two groups that sort of naturally formed within the church. The Hellenists and the Hebrews, or those who primarily spoke Greek and those who primarily spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. And, you know, language can be such a strong dividing line, can't it? Uh, Have you ever been in a community where you didn't speak the common tongue? Uh, where you struggled to communicate even a simple phrase like, how much does it cost? I know many of you have been in a situation like that. How did that feel? Uh, Personally, I felt restricted. I felt powerless. I felt judged and looked down on, all because I couldn't communicate effectively. Now, there was the language barrier in the early church between these two groups, but there was also a significant financial barrier. Many of the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, they didn't live in Jerusalem before joining the church. Uh, They came to Jerusalem for the holidays, essentially. When they came for Pentecost, it was a holiday celebration. And then, even though the people weren't expecting it or ready for it, God did something incredible in their midst. He started the church right there. So rather than going home after the holiday, these Greek-speaking Jews, they chose to stay and be a part of what God was doing there. Now imagine, some of you have travel plans this week for Thanksgiving. You've got family from out of town or out of state and You're planning to spend a a day or two there before returning home. But what if you got there and for some reason you decided to stay for two or three months or even longer? You know, you've only packed so many pairs of underwear, right? (laughs) You just grabbed that tiny tube of toothpaste. The weather looked decent for the days that you were there, but since you didn't pack your heavy coat when winter comes... You'll feel yourself in need. Now, how would you feel if you were in that situation and you were unable to communicate? Or more in line with what was happening here in the text, how would you feel if it was your widowed grandmother in that situation? Now, you're probably beginning to sense the weight behind this complaint. This complaint that arose, it wasn't a whiny, Mom, they got more than me. No, it's, this is a plea for justice. It's a plea on behalf of some of the most vulnerable people in their society. Widows, especially in this society, had very little rights and extremely limited resources. So these Greek-speaking widows who joined the early church, they were truly living on a prayer. They were trusting Jesus to provide for their needs and Come to find out, the church leaders weren't doing a great job of making sure that everyone got what they needed. So this complaint arose. And now before we focus on how these church leaders responded, let me ask you this. How do you tend to respond to criticism? You know, if you were in the church leader's position, how would you respond? Whether the complaint is accurate or not, there, there tend to be three general responses to criticism. And consider which one you tend to lean toward. 
uh, the first response is to just reject it. You deny that you were ever at fault. Uh, You brush aside any objection because obviously whoever's raising the complaint doesn't understand your perspective. They have a limited view, so their complaint doesn't matter. The second response is to reflect it. Uh, You know that the person raising the concerns, they've got to celebrate Festivus, right? Uh, So they they have their traditional airing of the grievances. So the, the best thing that you can do is just nod and say, yeah, I'm really sorry. But inside, you're not really sorry. You're just letting them feel better about getting whatever that's going on off their chest. And you reflect whatever response you think they want to hear or see so you can get this whole thing over with and get on with what you were doing. Uh, The third response is to receive the criticism. At its core, it's It's humbling yourself. It's searching for what is true and accurate in the complaint. Now, not every piece of the complaint may be true or accurate, but there's likely at least a portion that is. So you take it as an opportunity to grow, to learn, rather than to to grumble and lash out. So those are the three common responses to criticism. And which do you tend to lean toward? Is it how you want to respond? If not, what do you wish was different? Is there something that you can do to interrupt your default response? To give yourself a moment to consider how you would prefer to respond. So all that aside, let's look at the text again. And we'll see how the church leadership responded to this criticism. That they had neglected the care for the Greek-speaking widows, verses two through four. The 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the 12, they they received this criticism and they recognized that something needed to be done. So these men, Jesus' chosen leaders for this mission to make disciples, to baptize and teach them to follow, they gathered the whole church together and made a decision that would impact the life of the church. They said it wouldn't be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Now at first reading, this might rub you the wrong way. You may get a sense that the leaders were looking down their nose and saying that serving tables is too far below them. But that's not what's happening here. The 12 apostles, they're saying that they have been given a specific role and anything else would be disobeying God. You know, it'd be kind of like if your mom said to clean your room, and then your sibling says, oh, but we need to vacuum the hall, too. You know, you pay attention to the command that you have been given first. That is of utmost importance here. So the 12, they're saying that anything else besides teaching the word and praying would be disobeying God. 
It's not saying that this need is unimportant. It's not saying that their job is better than anyone else's. However, it is saying that they have been given a responsibility and that they must be focused on that as their first and highest priority. Now think back to what the firefighters have to do to accomplish their mission of putting water on fires. They remain laser focused on what's necessary. They develop systems that eliminate anything that might distract them or slow them down from accomplishing their mission. Just because one person's role is to drive the truck, that doesn't make their job any more or less important than the person whose job is to spray the water on the fire. The 12 apostles, they made a decision to remain laser focused on what was necessary for them, and that was prayer and the ministry of the word. So they developed a system to take care of the need without distracting them from what's most important. Now, I could easily dedicate the rest of our time to emphasize the importance of prayer and the ministry of the word. Some, especially those outside the church, might look at those two things and, and question, like, why do those things matter? Now, aren't you just talking into space and reading a super old book? But, but let me briefly respond and say, first of all, those things mattered to Jesus, so they should matter to us. And second, I can attest from my own experience and, and the experience of so many others that these are the true essential elements in a Jesus-following church. There are many churches that try to exist without prayer and the ministry of the word. They wouldn't say that, but in reality, they try to exist without prayer and the ministry of the word. But they soon become flat and stagnant. They make no lasting impact in their community, and they turn sour and bitter. Whereas, there are churches all across the globe who exist without buildings, without sound systems, without kids' ministries, all good things, mind you, but because they pray fervently, because they maintain a high priority on the preaching of the word, God is using them to advance the kingdom by making disciples and baptizing and teaching them to follow Jesus. These churches are alive and vibrant because they've remained focused on the most important things. So the church leaders tell the thousands gathered, we need to stay focused on the things Jesus has called us to. But this is an important concern. So we need to care for these widows. We need to take care of this. So we need you to pick the seven best people for this job. They had this group select seven men, well-known, well-liked, who were both spirit-filled and wise. You know, this wasn't a governing role in the church, but it was a vital one. And the 12 made sure to emphasize the character of these individuals because character matters. This isn't just filling a hole. It isn't just making sure that a job is accomplished. This is a matter of character, caring for those with needs. And notice the 12 
didn't select these individuals. They allowed the church to determine who best filled this role, who was best suited for this task. So the 12, they gave them the parameters, but the people made the actual recommendations. And that shows a lot of trust in the people, doesn't it? Now, similarly, here at Overflow, we've created a system where we are elder-led, meaning myself and our other pastors to come give the general direction and leadership for the congregation. But we are also congregational, which means that the church body has an important voice and is actively engaged. Uh, today, we're actually putting out the proposal for the 2024 spending plan. And this is something that the finance team and I, with the input of our advisory board, we've put together. But as a congregation, we will all vote to approve this in a few weeks. And if you have questions or concerns about the proposal, we want to hear them. We believe that we've been thorough and wise regarding how we steward what God has provided, but I don't claim that we're all-knowing or that the spending plan is inspired by God. So anyways, all that to say, the church best accomplishes our mission when we each carry out our roles. The, the 12 apostles, they knew their specific role was to pray and to preach, and they wouldn't let anything, even good and important things, distract them from carrying out their purpose. Now, let me ask you this. What is your purpose? Do you know? Now, sometimes a question like that can be sort of overwhelming, but there's no need to complicate it. God has given you particular gifts and particular passions, and he's also placed you in a particular time and location. The question is, how can you combine all of those together? What can you do that allows you to harness your gifts and your passions to make a difference in the lives of others? How can you show others Jesus? Now, in this passage today, we see seven guys selected, and they appear to be gifted in serving others because we don't hear about the concern arising again in the early church. They, they take care of the need. They were probably attentive to the needs of people, naturally gifted that way, I would imagine. They were also likely gifted in evaluating and dispersing the available resources. They were also passionate. If you notice, all seven of these guys have Greek names, which means that these widows who had been neglected, they may not have been their literal grandmothers, but there was a deep emotional connection. It pulled on their heartstrings, knowing that it could have been their mothers or their grandmas who had been overlooked. So this was a role and a responsibility that these men took super seriously. And finally, they didn't just have gifts and passions, but they actually lived it out. They met the need. They served faithfully. Now, what does this mean for us today? I want you to consider a few things. First, what is your highest and most important priority? In other words, if you were not to do this thing, you would be disobeying God. Maybe it's worshiping. 
Maybe it's teaching. Maybe it's helping people get connected. Maybe it's using your body or your mind to its fullest. Maybe it's reaching out and inviting people. Maybe it's speaking the gospel. Maybe it's praying on behalf of others. What is the thing you believe God has created you to do? Second, where do your giftings and your passions best align with what's happening around you? Maybe it lines up with something that we do at Overflow. Maybe it's best carried out in your neighborhood or in your workplace. Maybe it's serving in a pregnancy resource center. Maybe it's volunteering in our schools. Whatever it is, let me encourage you to pursue it. Jesus came to set the captives free and to lead us to live abundant lives in him. And friends, the fullest life that you can imagine is one where you are equipped and empowered to use your gifts and passions to serve others. Pursue them with every fiber you have. Don't settle for anything less than making the first things the first things. Now, if you're here today and you haven't experienced that freedom that's only found in Jesus, let me share this good news with you. Jesus loves you. That's good news, friends. Because I know on a lot of days, I'm unlovable. But Jesus, knowing all of our sins and all of our failures and flaws, he loves us. And he came to this earth and took the weight of our sins. He was completely without sin. But he went to the cross and paid the price that you and I deserve. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. That means each and every one of us deserves to be separated from God forever in spiritual and physical death. But scripture also teaches that there is a great gift because although the wages of sin is death, Jesus has come to bring life and life to the fullest. And all who come to him for forgiveness will find it. We will be set free in him. And I would encourage you, if you're here today and you've been trying to make it on your own, instead, to turn to him and say, Jesus, I need you. I, I am a terrible savior of my life, and I need you to carry me. Would you bow your heads with me? If that's you and you need to come to Jesus as your savior, I would invite you just to pray this simple prayer in your heart. Something like this, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. I've broken your laws. I've messed up the plan. But I believe that you sent Jesus to take my place. I believe that when he died on the cross, his sacrifice covered my sins. And I also believe that Jesus isn't still in the grave. 
But as the Bible says, you raised him from the dead on the third day, and he's now alive. And Jesus, I want to be made alive too. I pray that you would cover my sins and forgive me and raise me to that same new life in Jesus. Help me to follow you and live my life with the same purpose that we read about today, that my life could be one that makes a difference in this world for you and for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.